0: Hello, everyone. Glad to see each one of you here this evening at our uh, walk through the Bible midweek service journey through the Bible. So uh, we're glad that you're here. If you're online uh, tuning in, we're so glad that you're here with us as well. Welcome. So again, we're glad that you're all here and we're here to worship our our God and our Savior. The great thing is we worship a God. He's alive and he's well. and He's alive today. He's on the throne. So I invite you, if you're able to stand, let's sing about Him being alive.
1: See the tomb where He lay. See the stone rolled away. He is risen. He is risen. He's alive. Say it's you. in forever the light of
0: so thankful and grateful that you came you lived you died you rose again to take our penalty we thank you that you are here even in this room tonight to bring comfort to bring healing we know who's in the room you King Jesus are in the room and we thank you that you are the exact representation of the invisible God of God our Father. And we know that our God
1: is always good. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're life. But i heard a tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. i loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am, it's who I am I've seen many searching for us Good, Father, it's who You are. It's who You are. It's who You are. And I'm loved by You. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. And You're perfect in all of Your ways. You are perfect in all of Your ways. You are. perfect i Deeper still as you call me. Deeper still as you call me. Deeper still into love, love. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. I am, you are perfect in all of your ways, you are perfect in all of your ways, you are perfect in all of your ways, to us, you're a good good who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. I'm not loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Your hand, my... found is very much where you are Stand off all on you, Jesus. You're my hope and stay. So, teach my song to rise to you
0: when temptation
1: comes my way. When I cannot stand off all. Just on my whole past day
0: this evening Lord regardless of the week we've been through regardless of what face we face tomorrow we know that we need you without you we are nothing but with you because of you living inside of us and giving us the strength we can be everything that you have called us to be we thank you that a holy God totally amazing, totally majestic and out of our league is so interested in personally drawing close to us and being with us when we cry out. Sing this last phrase one more time. You're my one defense, my
1: righteousness, oh God. How I
2: need
0: you. Amen. You may be seated.
2: It was on. So we'll try this again. So we're going to be taking a look at Colossians. We're going to pick up, um, Tom did an amazing job. And if you haven't already told him he did, then you should. I got to listen to the study uh, last week. As I traveled, and then also on Sunday, I had the opportunity to go and visit a family that um, used to attend here, the Oliver's, and uh, they. I got to see them in their new environment in Idaho, and we got to teach at their family camp. And I can tell you, they are thriving. They're in this little burg of like nowhere. It, it's seven hours out. That the closest town has got 790 people in it. Their church's got about a hundred and. The boys have gotten really big. And I got to teach at their family camp last Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. And it was a blessing to be able to see other believers just gathering together. Gathering together. One of the coolest things happened on Saturday afternoon. Saturday afternoon, they always, because they, they meet in a one room community center for church, they don't have a place for a baptismal. And one of the little girls, Noel, Wanted to get baptized. And so she, earlier that day she said, Pastor Carey, can you take me out on a boat ride? And we went out on this little lake and we were going around and we were tooling around because her parents were busy doing stuff. And I paddled around on this lake with her. And she says, I'm getting baptized today. I said, you are? I said, tell me about it. And she got to give me her testimony in that, that boat. And I thought, what a little jewel. Yeah, to be able to do that, to watch this little girl just, and her dad baptized her right there. and You know, it makes me think about the baptisms that are going to happen this Sunday. We've got uh, two young ones that are going to be baptized. So for you older folk, it's not too late. The water, the tank will be there. But it was a real blessing to be able to see all of these kids and families getting together, loving the Lord and studying God's Word. And just just a really neat time. And that's what we're going to be taking a look at tonight is is in Colossians. And I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I want to pick up and, and and kind of get a rolling start to the end of this letter, it really is about the believer's behavior. Paul is writing to one of his favorite churches, Colossae, and he's writing from a, a prison cell, and not really a prison cell, house arrest with a Roman uh, guard that's chained up to him. And he's finishing this letter to Colossae. And, and I want to pick up on verse 17 because I think it's really a good hinge verse. Whereas he writes, he says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. It's really hard to hold ourselves to that accountable. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it as unto the Lord. It's easy to be good when you're in church. It's easy to be good when other... Christians are watching you. But how good are you at home? How, are you, how good are you with your spouse, with your kids? How good are you at work? And how good are you as a constant Christ follower in, in all of the aspects of your life? Paul is writing to this church because he really wants to challenge them on their behavior because behavior matters. People are watching you. Have you ever heard the phrase, your actions speak, are speaking so loud I can't hear what you're saying? And so within this, we, we can see that Paul is trying to challenge us with that, and intimate family relationships is tough, especially when you're with them 24-7 within this community, and... And the community of faith and within the household and being able to watch this. And so as Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, he's really challenging them and saying, look, it, as you move forward in your faith journey, pay attention to your behavior. Because your behavior really gives you a barometer of your spiritual temperature of where your heart is. And, and within that, one of the worst testimonies that you can have is one of hypocrisy one of hypocrisy where you are, you are not living that new life. And so you say, well, what is the standard? What is the, the performance indicator? Well, the performance indicator is what are you doing and is it unto the Lord? Now, if you, if you ended everything you did with your behavior as unto the Lord, then your life becomes this living sacrifice and this offering to God in everything that you do. And it's no longer compartmentalized because you have one target. It's as unto the Lord. I'm offering my life as a husband, as unto the Lord. I'm offering my life as a wife, as unto the Lord. Like I said, the problems between the switch and the floor, I should have muted it first. All right. So Paul is really trying to challenge us on our relationships, and, and marriage relationships is a difficult one, and then also dealing with kids, and then and that outer circle between work and the community within this. And so as we work through these passages that are here, what we need to understand is that as... A Christ follower, we need to we need to look at our house. And we need to look at how we are, are living, because that really is a barometer of the heart. Like I said, we can put on a good front on the outside, but on the inside, we really need to check ourselves. And we also got to understand that God has an order and a structure by which we live. So let's jump right into it in verse 18. So if whatever we do is in word and in deed, verse 17, he goes on and he says, Wives... Be subject to your own husbands as fitting to the Lord. Notice how it makes a connection in the 17. Whatever you do as unto the Lord, wives being subject to your own husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So he really drills down on this This home life concept. And he gives a word about marriage. And he starts with this relationship. We think about Adam and Eve. And God began creation with Adam and Eve. With a man and a woman. And this man and this woman were brought together. And the woman was taken from man, from the rib of man. Often in wedding ceremonies we'll we'll talk about the fact that the woman was not taken from a bone of the man's foot. That the man would step over her and on her. And the woman wasn't taken from a bone in the man's head, although men can be a bit boneheaded. That the woman would lord over him. But she was taken from man's side to be close to his heart. To be nurtured and protected. She was created from man to be compatible with man, to be his helpmate within that. And we need to understand that as God gave Adam and Eve this first marriage, in fact, in Genesis 2, verses 20 to 24, we read, And the man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman, the rib which he had taken from man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, claim to his wife, and they two shall become one. You ever think about what we were made of? Man was created out of dirt. That makes us men dirt clods. The woman was taken from the man's rib. That makes her prime rib. Oh. Oh.
1: They're Roll. Yeah.
2: You think about that. She is the best part of you men to be able to be in that place. This marriage relationship and this marriage partnership was a perfect union until we all messed it up. Some say, well, the woman did it the woman took the fruit but the man was standing right there not doing his job within this and so sin and rebellion had created this rejection of god's divine order when within that man gave up authority for the woman he didn't protect her he didn't the word was given to him and within this and so with, within this the woman would be subject to this now, we've got to understand that lots of times we don't necessarily like that word subject. And in marriage, they're brought together and they're to be together in this divine order. The wives are be subordinate to your own husband. Now, women, you, you get into this condition where you go, I don't want to be subordinate to any man. I'm not going to have a man rule over me. That's not what the word means. Hupotasis is a word that means to be equal, but under, within this, or subordinate. Hupotasis or hupotasso is a position of voluntary subordination. In other words, you choose to do this. Why? Number one, because it was the divine order and structure by which God had established order. Not that man would rule over the woman, but that the woman would would be in this Condition of serving with the man in the uniqueness of their design. If you've been married for any length of time, you're going to realize that your wives have gifts and abilities that men, we are just not capable of having. And we need them. We do. Wives, you have you are special within this. And amazingly gifted individuals that have your own capacity to complete us. Because we read in the text where Adam looked at all the animals and said, there's nothing there that completes me. Can you imagine Adam going, hippo? No way. Why? Because they were animals. They weren't there to complete. God created everything with order and structure. And when you think about the Godhead, is there order and structure in the Godhead? Sure. Sure. Three individuals, completely equal, yet subordinate. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the Son is subordinate to the Father, but yet equal in nature within this. And so there is a divine order in everything, in all of creation. And it doesn't make one less than the other. Jesus is no less than the Father, but He's subordinate in function because His function was different than the Father's. And the same with the Spirit. So we have to understand and and know that when this text says, Wives, be subject to your husbands, it's fitting, in the Lord. Notice the dative, in. That means if your husband is telling you to do something that's not in the Lord, Women, are you to be subject to your husband if it's not in the Lord? No. He's very clear. It's in the Lord. Honey, I want you to go rob the bank with me. No. Because that's not in the Lord. You consider Paul's parallel passage in Ephesians 5:22 to 24 Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their own husband, or it's implied subject to their own husband. Which literally means to show this respect. Wives, with respect, be in this place as it's fitting to the Lord. To serve with respect within this. So what does that mean? You're serving your husband, not because you think he's Jesus, because he's not. You're serving your husband as unto Jesus. And even if the guy is faulted in a lot of ways, you still serve him as unto Jesus. Because that's a reasonable act of service. It's fitting and it's in the Lord within this. And we need to understand that that we... I had a counseling appointment and it's one of those... Do you ever have those counseling appointments or those meetings where somebody just blows your mind? I had this conversation, and I shared this with a wife. and She says, well, I'll start serving him if he starts acting like Jesus. So that's going to be a long wait for you. But she put this condition on it. And and I don't see that condition in the text anywhere in here. It's as unto the Lord because it's this service. Now, you think, okay, well, guys, what's our line? Look at verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Now, Colossians only gives us one verse, Ephesians 5, 23 to 25. There's a lot more Paul has to say to the husbands. He says this, actually to 26, it says, or to 25, For husbands is the head of the wife, Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to the wife, or to Christ, so wives ought to submit to their husband and everything. Love your wives, note. Just as Christ also loved the church and, what did he do? Gave himself up for. Men, you're to self-sacrifice on behalf of your wife. You are to lay everything out. Men, there is not to be one selfish bone in your body when it comes to serving your wife. Jesus left everything Made himself a servant. Died on the cross within this. Tony Evans once said this, Our wives are like mirrors reflecting back to us what kind of husband we are. That's a powerful statement. If your wife is a reflection of what kind of husband you are, you can look at your wife and say, Well, how am I doing with this? We gotta think about this and I, I you know, I, I do a lot of premarital counseling with young men and young women and one of the things I tell the guy and I'm always harder on the guy, so if you're if you're thinking about premarital counseling, you better think twice about coming and seeing me. You might want to see Tom or Mike because they might be a little nicer. <laughs> but I tell the guys, I said, Look it, you are responsible for that woman's spiritual condition. You are the high priest of the home. You are to value this woman as a china cup and do not ever use her as a paper dish to be used and abused and cast off. Cherish, honored within this. Why? Because the church is the bride of Christ and Jesus died for her. We've got to understand that for husbands, this behavior that we have represents the agape love, the self-sacrificing love, which means you put the needs of your wife over yourself at all times. As a husband, you don't get to say, when is it my turn? You never get to say that. You say, well, when is it my turn? It isn't. But here's how the beauty works in a marriage relationship. When you husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, you woo your wife to love you back as the church loves Christ. To be into that relationship that is there. To be in that place where you are giving up everything for your wife. When, you, when she knows that you will give all. And you love and you keep on loving. You think about Jesus. Does Jesus just love the lovable? Did He die for those that were just kind to Him? No. He came to seek and save the lost. The least and the lost and the marginalized. And when they were nailing Him to the cross, how did He pray for them? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's how Christ loved the church, the lost, the believer within this. Men, headship is not a license to dominate or to be a dictator. It is a call to love like Christ sacrificially. Peter would describe the proper attitude of the husband in 1 Peter 3.7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your life, live with your wife, in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. That is a powerful passage. Because what is Peter saying? You husbands live in a way with your wife with understanding. In other words, men, make it a job to be a student of your wife. And live with her with understanding. And I know what's going through your head. Are you kidding me, Carrie? I don't understand her. You will spend the rest of your married life and your life on this planet trying to figure her out. And that's okay. That's the mystery of marriage. And you never put her in a place where you give her a position where she becomes broken. She is the weaker vessel, and you show her honor, note, as a fellow heir in the grace of God. You never treat her less than within that. And if you do, what does Peter say? Your prayers are hindered. What does that mean? That means if you treat your wife poorly, men, God's not going to answer your prayers. They're blocked. Why? Because your first ministry is to that woman. You say, Carrie, are you done beating us up? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) But you are the high priest of the home. And in a day and age when we have more people ending up in divorce than remaining married, it's because we are failing men to take our role. Now in that same vein... Women, if you want to be loved, don't make it hard on us. Please, help help a brother out. Be in that place. The second level of Christian behavior is seen in how you parent your children within this. Notice what he says in verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. So they will not lose heart. Paul addresses this next parent-child relationship in subordination, keeping the children under the parents. Within this, it's a very dangerous thing, isn't it? When the parent, when the children rule the roost, children should not be over the parents. I don't care what Disney says or Nickelodeon or whatever thing that there is indoctrinating the kids. The children are be to are to be subordinate to the parents. And to be obedient. And again, it's this idea of hupotasso, to be in the right place. Ephesians 6, 1-3, through 3, Paul says in the mirror passage, "...children, obey your parents in the Lord." Notice, "...in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you that you may live long on the earth." In the Old Testament, the problem was, if the children disobeyed, they would get punished. In fact, in Exodus... In the Decalogue, chapter 20, verse 12, it says this Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land the Lord gives you. Why? Because disobedient children were taken out and what? Stoned. And we're not talking about the stuff that grows out of the ground. They were killed, they were disciplined. But the problem is, in our society today, we can't discipline our children, they're entitled. Way too much within this, in our system. And to be able to honor the parents within this. To obey all things. Notice it's in the Lord. I would have kids in my youth ministry. When I was doing youth ministry, they say, Carrie, how do I obey this verse when my parents are not Christians? And they won't let me go to church. And they won't let me read the Bible and all of these things. I said, "What what does it say? It says, in the Lord. So you've got to figure out a way to be able to honor them in all aspects in the Lord. But again, if they're telling you to cross the line, don't cross the line. Have a conversation with them respectfully. And every one of those kids that would ever say, my parents won't let me go to church, said, if you, down, you sit down and talk with them and not talk at them, they'll listen. And They would. The motivation is to obey the parents because it's well-pleasing. And parents are to train up their their children in such a way. He says fathers here, which which really, it's not just the dads, but fathers because it was an authoritarian society, a patriarchal society. Fathers, it's your job to train your children, but it's really fathers and mothers together. Parenting is a team sport. It needs to be together. But God, again, holds the, the husband as responsible for the house within this. And God holds the husband or the man of the house responsible for the spirituality of the children within the house. And, and seen as the disciplinarian, he's not to over-discipline or to exasperate your children within this, which comes literally at poking at them and, and giving them this thing and continual nagging upon them. Or to micromanage them. Ephesians 6.4, Paul would say this, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice the word punishment is not in that text. Discipline and punishment. The difference between discipline and punishment is night and day. Punishment is causing pain to someone. It, it, it is, it is a, a, a penal action That causes suffering as a result of a misbehavior or a breaking of a law. Discipline is corrective. We discipline our bodies. We discipline ourselves. So the whole point of discipline is to bring about a change or a correction. Notice Paul uses the term discipline and what? Instruction. Punishment without instruction does absolutely nothing. Micromanaging your kids, and the word in Ephesians is provoke, literally means in Greek to poke at. Can you imagine, as a parent, if you went into your kid's room and you sat there and poked at their chest and just... uh, What eventually would happen? Well, you're going to get hit. Don't provoke them. But teach and instruct. Proverbs 1.8 says, Hear, my son, you father's instructions, and do not forsake your mother's teaching again a team sport proverbs 13 24. he who withholds the rod hates his son but he who loves him disciplines him diligently within this one of the things that was a tremendous blessing we're going to do it at family camp next year i'm going to steal it i already told the olivers i'm going to steal it these kids that were there and there's probably about i don't know 35, 40 kids that were running around this camp. We ate in this big mess hall, and there was, you know, dishes that were, that were there, and everybody was all lying down on these long tables. And, and Jamie had, and the parents had come up with this thing where the kids could earn a coin if they did an act of service un, unprovoked. They just did it. Just did it. And so certain people had these coins, and if, if they were seen serving then they would get this coin and then they would open up the candy store later and they could spend their coins on candy, right? Candy's a good motivator for kids. But they didn't sign up to do it. They didn't bring notice to themselves to do it. They just did it. I was sitting there eating my meal and I had two little heads come from either side of me going, are you done yet? Are you done yet? They were taking the place before we were done. No, I'm not done eating yet. It was as if they were saying, hurry up, I need to move on. i got to go help somebody else. Four days there was not one stick of trash on the ground. Not one. No one was ever having to ask, will somebody come help do this? Those kids were in the kitchen, part of the cooking team, part of the cleaning team, part of the dish team, all of that. And they were doing it. Knowing somebody was watching them and that they would get a reward, they didn't know who was where the reward was coming from or who was going to give it to them. They were just watching. That's training a child in an act of service, a discipline. And I was blessed. And we need to do some correction as part of that when they have bad behavior. There was a sign you may have seen, and it says, My parents spanked me as a child. As a result, I now suffer from psychological condition known as respect for others. I love that. My parents spanked me as a child. Now I have a psychological condition. I respect other people. We need to teach them to do that and correct them and motivate them the right way to to be in that place. Parents need to raise their children with a heart for the Lord and encourage them. The believer's behavior begins at birth or rebirth. From the time that they're a child, we train them up in the ways of the Lord. And at the time that they're born again, that conditioning continues. Now they can be disciplined in the Lord and in the Spirit. Is it ever too late to train a child? I don't think so. But you have to have the heart for it. And it's going to be a difficult journey. And it's a difficult balance between love and correction. We need to find that balance. But I think God does that very well, doesn't He? He loves us and He corrects us. The believer's behavior in the house exemplifies a life that has been transformed. With your wife, with your husband, with your kids, and even as unto your parents. But Paul goes on even further in the workplace, verse 22, on to 4:1, he says, "As slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on the earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than men." Here's verse 17 reiterated. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ from whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. And without partiality, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So in this last section, Paul moves outside of the house and into the workplace. Many of us spend many hours in the workplace. And it's a place that influences us greatly in our lives. And this word to the worker is in the circle of your employment. Now, slavery in Paul's day was a norm. It was normal for slaves to exist in Paul's day. It was an agrarian culture. And whether you were a slave that was working off a debt or you were a slave that was working for a master, they were they were working in that time. And these these people in Paul's day... Accepted slavery. In fact, you never see Paul or Jesus denouncing slavery, do you? No, because it was a social condition. It was normal within their society, within their structure. But what he does do is he corrects the behavior of those that would be abusive masters or entitled slaves. These negative and bitter slaves that would, that would treat them poorly. So if you were a Christian slave, how should you work? As unto the Lord. If you were a Christian master, how should you lead those that are unto you? As unto the Lord within this. And so he says, slaves in all things, obey your masters. Why? Because you're really serving the Lord. Your reward's in heaven within this. And looking for that, and it's really the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, and not eye-pleasing service. In Ephesians 6.6, 6, he says this. Paul would say, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, what does he mean? If you're an employee, don't be a good employee only when the boss is looking. Don't be doing things and say, hey, look at me, I'm over here and I'm, I'm, I'm working extra, I'm working over, I'm doing this. Look at me and pat yourself on the back and do all these. You do it as unto the Lord within this. Not for eye service. As an employee, you should have as much integrity when the boss is not looking as when he is looking. Whether it's on your computer or it's doing the job or whatever the case may be within this. Not way of eye service to be able to focus on their earthly master, knowing that the real master is in heaven. And what's the motivation in eternal inheritance within them? That Jesus is gonna gonna acknowledge that reward in heaven. And so within this, we gotta understand that Paul states basically the Lord is your inheritance as a slave. And it's in the Lord whom you serve. That's a constant theme, isn't it? Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Within this. Because it's the Lord and Savior that you serve in justice. But notice, anyone who does wrong, note, will be repaid by the Lord. What does that speak to? God's sovereignty. If you're a bad employee and you get fired... Because you're a bad employee? Don't get mad at your boss. God in essence fired you. Because you were a bad employee. Now, if you're a good employee and you get fired, then you gotta say, Well, what did what did I do wrong? Help me understand why I'm not working here anymore. And that may be persecution, maybe another a bunch of other things, but what do we need to do? We need to check our heart first. And God knows the heart of the master. God knows the heart of the service. And justice will prevail. But the slackers, those that are abusing the privilege of of employment, should be judged. If you're a bad employee, you should get fired. If you're not giving 100%, you should be corrected. And if you're not giving 100%, then you should be fired. Because you're serving the Lord. The problem is secular humanism and worldview has crept into Christianity where we got this idea of entitlement. And it's a very dangerous, dangerous thing for believers today. Where we have this idea that we are owed something. You're not. You're not owed anything. The 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 idea is that we need to be able to serve and God's going to reward and God's going to deal with the employer that mistreats his slaves also within this. Notice what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing what? That you too have a master in heaven within this. The Christian employer has to demonstrate authority, yes. And he needs to be just and fair, yes. But he also knows that he has to answer to God. In Ephesians six nine, and Paul would say, and masters do the same thing to them, give them or I'm sorry, and give up threatening, knowing that both the master and yours in heaven, and there is no partiality within him. Roman culture gave masters to treat their slaves as possessions. And so this was the cultural norm that, that Paul was fighting against for Christians who were bosses. Because the cultural norm says this is how you're supposed to treat your employees. And so Paul has to rewrite the cultural norm and say, no, the Christian behavior of an employer is to be fair and just and not treat people as possessions, but give them provision and to be fair. And Jesus actually is the the model leader. How did Jesus treat all of his disciples? Think about it. The night before he died, what did he do? As their boss, he washed their feet. And the night that he, and the Friday that he died, what did he do? He died for them. Do You see the pattern? Leadership means self-sacrifice. And Christian masters were to treat their, their, their servants even as members of their own house. The last part of this really goes through the Christian behavior in the public life. If you look at verses 2 all the way through to 18, it really deals with the behavior that's there. And we'll we'll unpack a little bit of it. Let's take a look at verses 2 through 6. So in your public life or as you are personally uh, portraying Christ, notice, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it and an attitude of thanksgiving, praying it all the time. Or praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door to the world word so that we may speak forth the mysteries of Christ for which I have also been in prison that I may make it clear in how I ought to speak conduct yourselves note with wisdom towards outsiders making the most of the opportunity and let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. So that you will know how you should respond to each person. So as it moves outside of the circle, the behavior within the, the home life, the marriage, the home life, the kids, and the work, how do we respond to other people? Paul gives primacy and priority to what? Prayer. Prayer. You really want to know how, to, how you should behave to those that are outside? Begin being one who is devoted to prayer. Why? Because you're going to hear from God and how you should act. How you should respond. You're going to, you're going to be transformed and led by the Spirit. Prayer is, is essential to spiritual health as the air that you breathe. If you stop pray, praying... You are not spiritually breathing. you need prayer. prayer constantly. Paul would write to the Church of Thessalonica, pray without what ceasing. Try holding your breath for about thirty minutes. Not going to work. and Paul, had a very mature prayer life and he calls the believer to be devoted to prayer. Which literally means to be in this constant communication. But if your prayer life is dull, your witness is going to be weak. Why? Because you're not connected. You're not breathing. And within this, we need to be alert. Notice he says that that we need to be devoted to prayer and keep, note, keeping alert in it, in what? In prayer. Prayer keeps you alert, spiritually alert, when you're praying for things in this. And, and being awake, not dull or one who's sleeping or like a drunkard as 1 Thessalonians 5, 6-9 through would say, but prayerfully looking and watching in life. If you're walking around with an attitude of praying, you're going to see spiritual things. You're going to see opportunities. You're going to be alert. Why? Because you're connected to God who's going to speak to your heart. You could be in Safeway and, and be in that place. I love Tom's analogy last week when he did this at the, at the, at the checkout counter. And, he, and he, said, he looked and looked at the countenance of the checker and said, How's your day going? How can I pray for you? That's being alert in prayer. So many times we're not alert in prayer because we're self-focused. We need to be in this place of constant prayer. And praying with an attitude of, note, thanksgiving, he says. A grateful heart within this. Richard Trench of Dublin in the 1800s said this, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying a hold of God's willingness Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. You're not forcing or badgering God into doing anything when you pray. But you're accessing God's willingness. I got word that someone needed prayer while I was at camp. I prayed. I sent a text message and to other people to begin to pray. And as the passage says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The person that we thought was not doing well, bounced back. Because of what we did? No, because of what God did. But we laid access to God's willingness to demonstrate His strength. And when God demonstrates His strength, we pray and we give it to God and then God responds. This Sunday, when we take a look at Joshua chapter 10, we're going to see how Joshua prays and God slows the rotation of the earth down and makes a day, not 24 hours, but 48. The longest day. That's amazing. Why? You know why? Joshua said, God, you called me out to beat these guys and they're running and I need more daylight. And he prayed. And God said, yep, I got that. No worries. I'll just slow the earth down. You'll have all the daylight you need to finish the job within this. You'll have to come Sunday for the rest of the message. And interceding, you look at verses 3 and 4. He says, praying at the same time as well as for us, What is that? That's intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is when you're joining with others and you're praying on behalf of other people within this. Paul's not just praying for himself, but he's praying for the church of Colossae and all the other churches. What is he praying for? He's praying for that open door, as he says in verse 3, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for all that I have also. What is he praying? He's interceding, saying... Pray for us and we pray for you so that you can evangelize. So we have those opportunities that the gospel message would be delivered and this opportunity for the gospel to have equal access that's there. Spurgeon was commented about his source of prayer. There was a visitor that came to Spurgeon's tabernacle there in England and they had heard about Spurgeon's great work that was going on this visitor comes to him and says, Mr. Spurgeon, how is it that you do such a great work? And he took the visitor downstairs. And he says, let me show you something. And he took him into the basement. And he says, this is where people are praying while I'm preaching. This is where the real work is. This is where the power is. It's not in me preaching. It's in people praying. While I'm preaching. Interceding on behalf of the message. And while I'm praying upstairs, people are praying downstairs. Prayer, as it's been said, is not the least that you can do. If someone says pray for me, that's the least I can do. Correct them. Praying is the best you could do. It's the best you can do. That's why when someone asks you to pray, don't say, I'll pray for you and walk away. When someone says, pray for me, stop right there and pray. Why? Because it's the best thing that you can do. And keep praying. To be able to be in that place. Because it affects your behavior. The one that is praying will have a Christ-like behavior. And we look at how many times Jesus prayed. How else? Verse 5. Conduct your life with wisdom towards those outside the faith. It is hard being a Christian in this world today, isn't it? Should we pray for wisdom and how to conduct ourselves with unbelievers? Absolutely. Because I can tell you this, if you don't pray before before you get engaged with unbelievers, you're probably going to wreck your testimony. Because you're going to operate out of the flesh. We need the Lord's wisdom to walk wisely with those that are outside of the faith. And... To take advantage of that time. Ephesians 5.16 says this. Make the most of your time because the days are evil within this. How should we conduct ourselves in a manner that honors God in making the the best use of our time? Question. How much time do you have left on this earth? How much time do you have left? If you're a younger person, you say, well, I've got probably about 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. Really? How about the 21-year-old that got killed last week in Klatskenai? Who loved the Lord, but God called him home at 21. You have to make the best use of your time. Redeem the time because the days are evil. You don't know how long you have. And within this, because we don't know how much time we have... Don't waste it doing dumb things. Don't waste it wrecking relationships that you have to go back and fix later. Prayerfully consider how to engage with people. And prayerfully consider how you speak with others. Verse 6 says, Let your speech always be seasoned with grace, as though seasoned with salt. So many times our, our speech is seasoned with vinegar. And, it's, and it's, it's toxic within this. The communication that we have is a commodity and we need to express words intelligibly, carefully. And be careful what you say. Because once that word leaves your mouth, you cannot get it back. It's like ringing a bell. You can't unring the bell. And even coarse jesting, when this stuff comes out, you have no idea what kind of damage you can do to that other person. So what should we do? We should pray and be in a constant state of prayer. For what? Wisdom. And how we should act towards other people. And how we should talk with other people. Our behavior within this to understand that what we say does matter. And we should have our speech with grace and salt. It's interesting. Have you ever eaten something that really was bland, that needed salt? Yeah. You know, salt is really good. And you think about Jesus saying, You are the salt of the earth, it's preservative, it gives flavor within this, to be in, in that place, to be able to, uh, to bring flavor with that. This grain of salt. But if you lose your ability to season your language for the Lord, then what are you saying? In Mark chapter 9, verse 50, Jesus would say, Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In other words, make what you say and what you do matter for the good with people within this. To preserve, to correct, to purify. Sometimes your speech needs to purify somebody. Sometimes in love you need to be a little salty and say, Look, right now your attitude is not very Christ-like. It's not doing very good. Or you have to correct. That's not a bad thing. There's preserving nature in that. Be out of love. Remember the key. Whatever you do, do it as what? Unto the Lord. Words do matter. And you're accountable for your words. Matthew 12:36. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Let that verse soak in your head for a minute. Makes me want to keep my mouth shut. I don't want nothing slipping out. Let every careless word. How many of us are guilty of careless words? We let them slip out. And we should. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, as James would say. Our behavior towards others should be winsome, it should be gracious. Our speech should be encouraging. And sometimes we try to be funny and we say the wrong thing and we hurt other people's feelings and when that happens, be quick to say I'm sorry within that and correct it. Lastly, what Paul does, how he ends this this letter, is he celebrates the people that have supported him in ministry within this. These are people that helped him. In verse 7 all the way down to 18, he says, As to all of my affairs... Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. Tychicus was the letter carrier. He would be our modern-day mailman. For I have sent him to you for this purpose, that you may know how our circumstances, and that he may encourage your heart, And with him, Onesimus, our faithful beloved brother, who is one of your number, from Colossae. And they will inform you about the whole situation. Aristarchus, my beloved prisoner, sends you his greeting. And also Barnabas's cousin Mark, this would be John Mark, about whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, meaning that they were Jews, that they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras who is one of your number, again, Epaphras from Colossae, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greeting and also Demas. And greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, Also, Nympha and the church that is in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans for you uh, and you for your part. Read the letter that is coming from Laodicea and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting note with my own hand. Remembering my imprisonment, grace be to you. So how does he end? Well, he sends greeting with this whole list of people. Notice it was Tychicus, Paul's co-laborer. He was, the, as I said, the mailman. Onesimus was a slave that came to faith and uh, when he ran away from his master Philemon. The letter of Philemon was a correction letter to get Onesimus back to him. And he met Paul in Rome and, and as he ran away, and he accepted him. In fact, in Philemon 10, he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I've begotten in my imprisonment. So Onesimus runs away from Philemon, ends up in Rome, meets Paul. <laughs> Guess what? Has a little come-to-Jesus moment. And Paul says, Onesimus, you need to go back to Philemon. Oh, and Philemon, I'm going to write you this letter that you need to take him back and don't treat him harshly within this. And so he has this. Paul also sees his ministry partners, Aristarchus, who is a native of Thessalonica, part of Paul's traveling team. John Mark is there, nephew of Barnabas, and he was helping Paul as uh, a worker. He was on the first trip and and didn't do well. Later he comes back and serves um, with Peter and actually gives, and Peter and John Mark write the gospel. Justice is the Latin name for Jesus. Epaphras was an evangelist who established Churches in Asia, especially the work in Colossae. Colossae is not far if you were in Turkey with us. Colossae and Laodicea are really close to each other. They're, they're maybe 20 miles apart with each other. And so they would take this letter, and it was a circular letter that would go out. So there's, there was one that, um, that we don't have, that's Laodicea, and then there would be the one, that, uh, the Colossae, that would go. Luke, who was Paul's personal doctor that was there to helping him and taking care of him, History tells us that Luke uh, stayed with Paul until Paul's death, then continued ministry, um, never marrying, and never having any kids, and he died at about 84, at at a full age. Demas, only mentioned a few times in Scripture, he was with Paul. He's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.10, as one who had loved this present world and deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, Cretans have gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. So what ended up happening with Demas? Demas was with Paul for a while and then he deserted the faith and returned back. And then he, he just acknowledges all of his friends there in Laodicea, the house church of Nympha, and all of those people that are there, Archippus, another servant that was there. And Paul ends this and says, and I wrote this by my own hand. Which is amazing because most of Paul's letters were written by scribes. And he dictated them to him. Paul had a hard time seeing. And so often times you'll see, well I wrote it by my hands. Or he'll say, and you can see the large letters by which I wrote within this. So to get a handwritten letter was, was quite a work within this. Paul had a ministry team. What does that tell us? That tells us that no man is an island and we need a team. We work together, and the body of Christ, though in vast different areas, is still functioning as the body of Christ. Hence, the blessing of being able to go and minister in Chris and Jamie's church that is there, and other churches. And we think about the Daniels and with Operation Christmas Child administering to other churches, and and the projects that are there to be able to to evangelize, to go out, to take these gifts. Our missionaries that are in other places. And when we go to Romania next year, an opportunity again to minister. The believer's behavior is essential to witness. But in order to have proper behavior, you've got to preach to yourself the gospel first. And then you'll be able to preach to others. Let's pray. God, I thank You for this letter. I thank You that You've given to us this accounting of how we should behave within our homes, our family, our workplace, that we should be devoted to prayer, asking for wisdom, and speaking truth and love. Lord, I thank you for the ministry teams that are here at WCF, but also as we are part of a larger team with our missionaries and our outreaches. Until that day that you call us home, and we don't know when that end is, May we be constant in season and out of season and speak truth and love. And may we see many, many people come to know the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So all stand.
1: My soul will rest, my confidence. There is a light, salvation's flame, Christ undefeated trampled the grave. Spun. The line has won. My eyes on Christ, my King. I bow my life. I fix my eyes on Christ.